Good evening. Next Monday at this podium, at this time, Alexander Wilson, who is the Director General of the British Library Reference Division, will be speaking toward a universal library of rare books. Mr. Wilson spoke here in April of 1983, I think it was, in what many people thought was the best speech ever delivered to a Friends of the Book Arts Press audience. So we're expecting great things from him again a week from tonight. Our speaker this evening is Thomas Berger from Lawrence University, who will be speaking on a subject which he will explain. It's a great pleasure to have him here. <laughs> Thank you, Terry, very much. I don't know if that I'll ever end up explaining the subject at all. Of, as, in, to, by, do, he, if, on, is, up, so, me. I thought I'd warm you up with a few of the many two-letter words in Shakespeare's Henry V. I'm not going to talk about those words, though, nor will I talk about other two-letter words, ones that are a bit more exciting. Two-letter words, he observed, are half as long as four-letter words, but some can really pack a wallop. Ha! Ow! Ow! Oh! I want to talk about only one two-letter word in Henry V, though it does crop up more than once. And I want to assure you at the very start of this lecture that I'm fully aware of the danger that lurks everywhere when someone proposes to occupy your time with a lecture on one two-letter word on this day, April 1st. <laughs> I hope many of you got the April Fool's Day uh, bit in the poster. You will note that this is an illustration from to Henry IV not from Henry V. <laughs> this is when Prince Hal is putting the crown on his head his father, Henry IV, is not dead, but sleeping. Hal wants his father to be dead, but his father will not oblige him for yet another act. <laughs> Let me slow down a bit and start again, a bit more fussily, a bit more formally, a bit more bibliographically. Before I begin in earnest, let me, as any self-respecting vice president for institutional resources would put it, let me background you. Let me lull you into a state of comfort with several comfortable half-truths about Henry V that we want to believe. Further, I really don't know who you are. I have absolutely no way of gauging you, my audience. Sure, I know you're interested in ideas and words and pens and type and paper and books and the havoc that ensues when ideas and words and pens and type and paper and books collide. I ask you then to forgive the obvious, but I take a great deal of comfort in the fact for me, the obvious always gives me the most trouble. Henry V was written, we are told, in the spring or summer of 1599. It had to be, we are told, for if it were not, then the lines in the chorus preceding Act V were now the general of our gracious empress, as in good time he may, from Ireland coming, bringing rebellion broached on his sword. Lines referring to Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who left for Ireland on 27 March and returned in disgrace on 28 September, those lines would make no sense were I a betting man. And I must say that one of the joys of spending a year on sabbatical in New York City is the quiet joy of watching games of three-card Monty. I'd bet the play was written earlier. I'd bet that these three lines were added for an appropriate performance in the spring or summer of 1599. Just as I'd bet, were I a betting man, 
that the Scots captain, Captain Jamie, was added to the play after the accession of James in 1603. But I go before myself. Something as simply, simple as dating a play is too treacherous. Well, at least we know where it was first played. Was it first performed at the Globe? Is the wooden O mentioned in the first chorus, which I guess we'd better call the prologue, or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Is this the Globe, or is it the Curtain? The Globe not having been built until August or September of 1599. Do you see the problems I encounter just backgrounding you? Does our need to have the allusion to Essex be fresh and thus in the spring or early summer of 1599 outweigh our need to have a grand epic play kick off the opening season at the Globe? A reason, not the need. Having established my inability to date the play and to place it in a theater, having established the authority of my ignorance, I'd like to move along to the texts of Henry V backgrounding all the while. For our purposes, there are four textual witnesses to Henry V, three quarter, quarto editions in 1600, 1602, and 1619. Ooh, precede the folio uh, text of 1623. Uh, the first quarto of 1600 uh, has long been believed to be a bad quarto. But as the word bad is no longer fashionable, it might be best to consider it an abbreviated version cut for performance by a reduced cast, perhaps in the provinces. Have any of you ever noticed that when something goes wrong, we always blame it on the provinces? <laughs> Gary Taylor has offered some convincing, will it play uh, <laughs> in Peoria? Uh, Gary Taylor has offered some convincing arguments that the first quarto contains changes that do not depend on a reduced cast for provincial performances and his recent Oxford edition, eliminating the Dauphin from Agincourt and conflating Westmoreland with Warwick at the same battle reflects his belief in such changes. I think I'm coming around, though, to see that first, that bad quarto as an edited text, a consciously and artistically shortened version of the play. But more of this, perhaps, during the question and evasion session after my talk. <laughs> On August 4th of 1600, a staying entry in the stationer's register was made, and 10 days later, the copyright we are told, was transferred from Thomas Millington and John Busby to Thomas Pavier. Apparently, the fact that Millington and Busby never had a copyright to begin with is of little concern. I've argued elsewhere that this staying entry was made by the Lord Chamberlain's men after they lost the text of Henry V, but before they had lost or were about to lose other texts they had not yet sold, for example, to Henry IV and Much Ado. The second quarto of 1602 is a pretty close reprint of the first quarto, repeating many of its errors and introducing new ones. The Pavier quarto of 1619, dated 1608, is, I'm becoming more and more convinced, the product of an editorial intelligence, not a meddling compositor. Finally, the folio text of 1623 is the good text, the good text on which all modern editions of Henry V, even Gary Taylor's, are based. So much for background. In a recent article in Shakespeare Quarterly, John C. Mayer wrote of economy and recognition, 13 Shakespearean puzzles. Mayer came up with 13 puzzles, not because he could find only 13, but because 13 was the size, he surmised, of Shakespeare's theatrical cast, a cast that enforced economy on Shakespeare and recognition on his audience. Two of the three puzzles concerning Romeo and Juliet illustrate Mayer's method. Paris cannot come to the Capulet feast in Act I, 
Mayer's puzzle one, and is referred to as Mercutio's kinsman, puzzle three, in the final scene of the play for one and the same reason. Mercutio is Paris. Paris cannot come to the Capulet feast because Mercutio is there, and the actor, who is playing both roles, cannot reproduce himself. Shakespeare calls attention to this fact in Act Five by identifying, quite unnecessarily, the dead Paris as Mercutio's kinsman. Mayer demonstrates Shakespeare's economy by showing how Mercutio and Paris were doubled. That Shakespeare was conscious that this doubling occurred and was aware that at least some of his audience might be conscious of it as well can be seen in Romeo's placing Mercutio and Paris in a familial context. Stephen Booth, in a book called King Lear, Macbeth, and Indefinition in Tragedy, goes further and adds Prince Aeschylus to this list, uh, making Paris and Mercutio and Aeschylus all being played by the same actor. Thus the line, and I, for winking at your discords, have lost a brace of kinsmen, uh, encompasses all three uh, characters in one actor. I pondered Mayer's essay and reflected on some problems I have encountered in the text of Henry V, the folio text. I want to propose seven Megarian puzzles for Henry V. You'll be relieved, I'm sure, but hardly surprised to learn that, like Mayer, I can solve all of them. My solutions illustrate Mayer's concept of theatrical recognition with a vengeance, but they show, I fear, that while Shakespeare may have been a master of economy of casting in Romeo and Juliet, 1 Henry IV, Richard II, King Lear, As You Like It, and The Winner's Tale, those plays with which Mayer deals, he did not successfully solve one such problem in Henry V. Shakespeare's failure to overcome this problem gives us a chance to see at first hand a playwright, a shaper of plays, at work. For that, much thanks but I go before myself, and let me at least present my puzzles before I solve them. This is help with the handouts. That would be love. No, I'm happy. Has anybody ever been to a lecture where they give out candy? Because I mean, you've got the, the visual sensation, and I was just thinking, you get, Keep people happy. It's like the baby egg rolls. I want you to recall a scene or part of a scene in Act 3 of Henry V. It may be scene 2 of that act if you follow the new Arden editor, J.H. Walter, or it may be scene 3 if you follow Taylor. But in point of fact, it's probably just a continuation of scene 1. Isn't it fun for Shakespeareans to discuss the board when none of us can decide on something as simple as what constitutes a scene? Is this scene or part of a in this scene or part of a scene, we have the English Renaissance equivalent of the obligatory scene in every John Wayne World War II movie, showing that all America is fighting the yellow menace or the hateful Hun, depending on the theater of operations with which the movie concerns itself. We are shown Jack Armstrong from the Midwest, Rico Petrocelli from Brooklyn, Moses Washington from South Carolina, and to round it out, Charles Winchester, a blue bud from Boston. Yes, sir, all America is fighting this one. The same obtains in Henry V. The Welsh captain, Flewellen, introduced to us earlier in the scene when he drives Pistol and the East Cheap characters back into the breaches, is joined by the English captain, Gower. They are joined shortly thereafter by the Scots captain, Captain Jamie, and the Irish captain, Captain McMorris. Flewellen baits McMorris. Captain McMorris, I think, look, you under your correction, there is not many of your nation. Bringing the hot-tempered stage Irishman to a boil, I do not know you so good a man as myself, who so Christ save me, Law, I will cut off your head. The two are about to have at it when the besieged Harfleur sounds a parley. Flewellen advises the McMorris that when there is more, better opportunity to be required, look you, they will meet again. 
Shakespeare, though he is constantly nodding, does not often introduce a conflict without resolving it. He does a wonderful job on the appearances of the French Harold Montjoy, for example, moving him from haughty Harold to meek petitioner. Pistol's encounters with Flewellen develop from the initial encounter before Harfleur to Pistol's attempt to bribe Flewellen to keep Bardolph's vital thread intact to Pistol's final humiliations at the hands of the leak-wielding Welshman in Act V. Again, the sequences of the French nobility develop sequentially. Puzzle one. Why don't Flewellen and McMorris meet again? In Act 4, Scene 7, Henry confronts Williams, the soldier with whom he had exchanged gauges in Act 4, Scene 1. Now we're into your handout. When Henry asks Flewellen if it is fit this soldier keep his oath, the captain responds that Williams would be a craven and a villain else. Henry asks Williams under whom he serves, and the soldier answers, under Captain Gower, my liege. Reticence not being the strong suit of any Welshman, Flewellen's opines that Gower is a good captain and is good knowledge and literature in the wars. Williams is sent to fetch Gower, and Henry gives Flewellen the gauge he has received from the soldier, claiming it is the Duke Alençon's. Henry then asks Flewellen if he knows Gower, to which Flewellen replies, he is my dear friend and please you. Flewellen is sent off to find Gower, and the scene concludes with Henry urging Warwick and Gloucester to follow the Welshman, knowing full well that Williams and Flewellen will come to blows over the gauges. Puzzle two. If Flewellen has just heard and understood Williams's description of what transpired on the eve of Agincourt, why would he believe Henry's statement that the glove is Alençon's, especially if that fabrication comes within two lines of the conclusion of the sequence with Williams? Puzzle three. Why would Henry ask Flewellen if he knew Gower, inasmuch as Henry has seen the two captains together in Act 4, Scene 1, only a few mo moments before he exchanged gauges with Williams, and, more important, inasmuch as Flewellen has just delivered his opinion on Gower's qualities as a captain? Puzzle 4. Why, when Flewellen has just heard and seen Williams being sent off to find Gower, does he head off, head off to find him as well? Puzzle 5. Why is it necessary that Flewellen acknowledge for the second time in 17 lines that he knows Gower? Immediately following, Act 4, Scene 8 begins, and sure enough, Williams and Flewellen square off. Williams asks Flewellen, Sir, know you this glove? That Williams is pointing to the glove in his own bonnet and not to that in Flewellen's is apparent in Flewellen's reply. Know the glove? I know the glove is a glove. Pointing to the glove in Flewellen's cap, William says, I know this, and thus I challenge it, striking Flewellen and beginning the fight in earnest. Puzzle six. Having heard Flewellen comment on the glove and the challenge, why does Williams ask Flewellen if he recognizes the glove? Puzzle seven. Having heard of Williams's challenge but one scene earlier, not to, not to mention having been asked to comment on it, comment on it not once but twice, why does Flewellen fail to recognize the glove in Williams's hat? Much as I hate to admit it, the answer to all of the puzzles appears to be that Shakespeare screwed up. This is nothing startling. Mayer is by no means the first to point out that Shakespeare does not have everything under control. It is possible for him to leave a character temporarily unrecognizable by carelessly failing to provide an identification, or to forget to follow through with an implicit dramatic promise, or to neglect to supply scenes with all the potentially important personnel. Instructive are the nature and the cause of the mistake. Instructive, too, is the realization that in at least one aspect, Henry V is very much an unfinished piece. Let me return to my first puzzle and the scene in which it occurs. As soon as Captain McMorris speaks, he identifies himself as an Irishman. 
By Kreisler, Tischil done, the work is give over, the trumpet sound the retreat. By my hand I swear in my father's soul, the work is done, it is give over. I would have blowed up the town so Christ saved me law in an hour. The town is besieged and the trumpet call us to the breach and we talk and be Christ do nothing. Tis shame for us all, so God save me. Tis shame to stand fill. It is shame by my hand and there is throats to be cut and works to be done and there is nothing done, so Christ save me law. One word troubles me. A two or three letter word, depending on your preference for modern or old spelling additions. Get ready, get set, here comes the two letter word, which in fact is a three letter word in the folio text. The word is law or law. Spelled L-A-W, it is pronounced law. Spelled L-A, it is pronounced law. You say potatoes, I say potatoes. The word is commonly used, Gary Taylor tells us, by Irish dialect characters elsewhere, especially in association with O's. With a law here, a law there, here a law, there a law, everywhere a law, law, I want to turn to Act 4, Scene 7, where most of my puzzles occur. Henry has asked Williams why he is wearing a glove in his hat. Williams responds, and Henry asks for Flewellyn's advice. Flewellyn opines the soldier must keep his oath. Henry then asks what would happen if William's enemy is a gentleman of great sort, quite from the answer of his degree. Flewellyn responds again, though he be as good a gentleman as the devil is, as Lucifer and Beelzebub himself, it is necessary, look your grace, that he keep his vow and his oath. If he be perjured, see you now, his reputation is as errant a villain and a jack sauce as ever his black shoe trod upon God's ground and his earth in my conscience law. That final word in Flewellyn's speech, that final law, is vexing. What is a Welshman doing with an Irish word in his mouth? To answer that question is to solve the puzzles. McMorris, who was to have participated in this part of the scene, for some reason has been replaced by Flewellyn. Somehow, one word of McMorris's dialogue, that law, remained and worked its way into the text of the play. The implications of the change from McMorris to Flewellyn in the rest of the scene were not recognized, at least in the folio text. I'd like to reconstruct the conclusion of Act 4, Scene 7, from Williams's entrance onward, reconstruct it the way it should be, the way that rogue word law and dramatic logic demanded to me to be. This segment reconstructed would have something like eight parts. King Henry, having just spoken with Flewellyn, dismisses him. Flewellyn retires. That is, he moves to the back of the stage. Henry orders the English heralds to accompany Monjoy, and then he calls Williams forward, call yonder fellow hither. Williams explains his challenge. Henry asks an onstage McMorris whether Williams should keep his oath. McMorris responds. Henry asks Williams under whom he serves, and William, Williams responds, and McMorris says that Gower is a good captain and well-literatured in the wars. If you have McMorris speaking, Gower is a... Gower is a good captain and is good knowledge and literature in the wars, then you implicitly state that while Gower is, Flewellyn is not, so that McMorris is getting back at Flewellyn. Henry commands Williams to call Gower hither, Williams exits, and McMorris retires. Henry calls Flewellyn forward and asks him to wear the glove of Alanson in his cap. Flewellyn agrees. Henry asks Flewellyn if he knows Gower for the first time. Flewellyn says he does, and Henry sends Flewellyn to bring Gower to the king's tent. The scene closes with Henry ordering Warwick and Gloucester to follow Flewellyn, knowing that Williams and Flewellyn will come to blows. In addition to solving all of my puzzles, this reconstruction, which I think is on your handout, 
points in other directions and asks new questions of the play. My first puzzle, why do Flewellen and McMorris fail to meet again, disappears. They do meet again in Act 4, Scene 7. At one time, if only in Shakespeare's imagination, the Welshman and his Irish compeer met and reconciled their differences. That meeting, or the remnant of it, is recorded in the law of Flewellen's speech in Act 4, Scene 7. The victory over the French at Agincourt has done precisely what Henry's father had advised. By discovering the conspiracy of Cambridge, Scroop, and Gray, and by engaging and defeating France, Henry has healed the wounds of civil war in Britain, the very civil wars to which he alludes in his wooing of the Princess Catherine. After their row in Act 3, Scene 2, having Flewellen and McMorris, as well as Gower and Jamie, on stage together emblematically signifies the internal peace among the parts of Britain. England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland are one under Henry V. But that sequence was never written, or if it was written, it was partly deleted and partly revised, with Flewellen taking over McMorris's role. Revision was only partial, as my puzzles and their solutions indicate. Shakespeare had other dramatic fish to fry. The French and English casualties needed to be heralded. Pistol needed his comeuppance. Catherine needed to be wooed and won. And the French needed to agree to all of Henry's terms. As much as McMorris belongs in Act Four, he does not appear because he cannot appear. The actor playing his role is busy playing another character. Economy, perhaps in a broader sense than Mayer means, is at work in this scene. In casting Henry V, I have followed Mayer and limited Henry V to 13 actors. With more, McMorris need not be eliminated. With fewer, the play is virtually, if not literally, unactable. I've used the text of the first folio to assemble my cast, and I think the casting list is in your hand. I know the casting list is in your handout as well. Beginning with Edward Capel's edition of 1767-68, many editions of the play have eliminated the Duke of Clarence and the Duke of Beaumont. Taylor's edition conflates Britannia and Bourbon, Bourbon, Warwick and Westmoreland. But I think Shakespeare's chorus is a better guide. If we shall much disgrace with four or five most vile and ragged folds, foils, right ill-disposed and brawl ridiculous, the name of Agincourt, Shakespeare would want to swell his scenes with as many different characters as possible, just as he swells the numbers of the French nobility in Act 3, and again in the list of the French dead at the end of Act 4. On the mundane level of spectacle, it is more effective to have Bourbon and Britannia as separate characters. What they say is less important than the fact that they are different French nobles. The same applies to the mute Beaumont, another French noble, one whose death enhances Henry's glory. According to my calculations, Shakespeare doubles Exeter and McMorris. It is Exeter who supports Henry's cause in Act I, and it is he who reveals the tennis balls brought from the Dauphin in that same act. It is Exeter who formally arrests Cambridge, Scroop, and Gray in Act 3, Scene 2. It is Exeter whom Henry sends on embassy to the French court later in that same act. It is Exeter who enters Harfleur and fortifies it strongly against the French. It is Exeter who sentences Bardolph to be executed for the theft of the Pax Picts. It is Exeter who relates the deaths of York and Salisbury in Act 4, Scene 6. And it is Exeter who reads Henry's new titles to France in the final scene of the play. Henry needs, and Shakespeare desires, Exeter's presence for the conclusion of the battle. McMorris must go. Even so, Mayer's principle of recognition obtains. After the audience has been exposed to Exeter in Acts 1 and 2, it meets him again in the person of McMorris, 
who, in Flewellen's opinion, is an ass, as in the world. Flewellen's exuberant praise of Exeter McMorris four scenes later, the next time Flewellen appears, becomes dramatically richer if his enemy and his hero are one and the same. The Duke of Exeter is as magnanimous as Agamemnon, and a man that I love and honor with my soul and my heart and my duty and my life and my living and my uttermost power. He has not got be praised and blessed any hurt in the world, but keeps the bridge most valiantly with excellent discipline. In the medieval morality play, Mankind, one, two characters, Mercy and Titavillus, struggle for mankind's soul. They're both played by the same actor. If the economy of casting governs McMorris's disappearance, economy and recognition deepen and broaden our understanding of the play. On an entirely nonverbal level, it becomes possible to judge anew certain readings the play has received. Is it by accident that the three traitors, Cambridge, Scroop, and Gray, are replaced not only thematically, but quite literally, by the honest English soldiers, John Bates, Alexander Court, and Michael Williams? And is it possible, too, that Bardolph and Nim, sworn brothers in Filching, appear first as the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Ely, clerics who are not entirely disinterested in the French wars? Bardolph and Nim are both hanged. They must die so that they can be replaced by men who die nobler, more courageous deaths the Duke of York, and the Earl of Salisbury, whose reported deaths occupy the entirety of Act 4, Scene 6. Again, it is wholly appropriate that the boy and Princess Catherine are played by the same actor. No dunce, Catherine realizes that a rudimentary knowledge of English might serve her should the French lose at Agincourt and should she remain part of the French peace offering to Henry. The boy's knowledge of French enables Pistol to negotiate a ransom from the French soldier Lefaire, a ransom he will never receive. By the end of 1 Henry IV, between the end of 1 Henry IV and the beginning of 2 Henry IV, Prince Hal had put the boy in Falstaff's service. As Falstaff must die, so too must the boy, one last symbol of Henry's connection with the fat knight. To complete the action of the play, to establish Henry as this star of England, the king must woo and win Catherine that she will bear him Henry VI, whose state so many had the magic managing that they lost France and made his England bleed, is ironic enough. That Catherine is the boy underscores the completion of Henry's growth from prince to king, from irresponsible youth to mature adult. Finally, as far as nonverbal, or in this case, quasi-verbal recognition is concerned, there is the actor who plays Pistol. Pistol, whose rhetoric is constantly getting the better of him, is played by the same actor as the chorus, whose rhetoric is controlled. Pistol, who claims to be as good a gentleman as the emperor, is played by the self-effacing, apologetic chorus. I was at the Shakespeare Association convention a couple of weeks ago and heard a paper by Scott McMillan at Cornell, who was saying that oftentimes when you run into casting difficulties, it makes you not make your text more compact, but expand your text. And I think this is the case in Henry V. The B Pistol has got to come on in act two, scene one, following a prologue, and act five, scene one, following a prologue, but he doesn't come on for 15 or 20 lines because he's getting out of his chorus outfit. So Shakespeare has got to write in some foolishness at the beginning of the scene just to give Pistol time to do his uh, routine. That the chorus and Montjoy are played by the same actor adds dramatic perspective to recognition, for in many ways Montjoy, in his three visits to the English camp, gives the plays French perspective on some of the very actions we have had described to us by the chorus. 
With the constable and the Dauphin doubling as the two French ambassadors in Act One, Scene Two, Shakespeare uses economy and recognition for ironic and comic effects, though we must wait for these effects until the end of Act Two, when we meet the Dauphin and the constable for the first time. Henry's long speech deriding the Dauphin and returning his mock becomes more powerfully scornful when, a full act later, the audience sees that it was to the Dauphin himself, or to the actor playing the Dauphin, that Henry spoke. Similarly, when the Dauphin derides Henry as a vain, giddy, shallow, humorous youth, and when the constable corrects him, reminding the French heir to question the late ambassadors with what great state he heard them their embassy, how well supplied with noble counselors, how modest in exception, and withal, how terrible in constant resolution. The irony of those two characters already having seen and heard Henry will not be lost on an audience forced into recognition by the dictates of theatrical economy. Finally, demonstrating Shakespeare's playfulness, if nothing else, there is King Henry himself. The actor playing his role first doubles as the French noble Berry, who appears only once in a mute role in Act Two, Scene Four. Thus, in one extra dramatic sense, Henry is present in the very scene in which the Dauphin ambassador and the constable ambassador debate his kingly qualities. That's a nice touch. The last scene of Act Three, Three Seven, finds the French boasting on the eve of Agincourt. A messenger enters to report that the English lie within 1,500 paces of their tents. When the constable asks who hath measured the ground, the messenger tells the nobles that it is the Lord Grand Pre. Two scenes later, Grand Pre appears in a French costume, uh, appears for the first and only time, or rather, the actor playing Henry appears in a French costume and the folio stage direction and speech prefix and nothing else identify this character as Grand Pre. He describes the English forces. Why do you stay so long, my lords of France? Yon island carrions, desperate of their bones, ill-favoredly become the morning field. Their ragged curtains poorly are let loose, and our air shakes them, passing scornfully. Big Mars seems bankrupt in their beggared host, and faintly through a rusty beaver peeps. The horsemen sit like fixed candlesticks with torch staves in their hand, and their poor jades lob down their heads, dropping the hides and hips, the gum down roping from their pale dead eyes. And in their pale dull mouse, the gimmelled bit lies foul with chawed grass, still and motionless. And their executors, the knavish crows, fly o'er them all, impatient for their hour. Description cannot suit itself in words to demonstrate the life of such a battle, in life so lifeless as it shows itself. That these words so powerfully describing the state of the English forces should come from an actor who will utter, one scene later in the role of Henry, the St. Crispin's Day speech, forces not only recognition on the audience, but also exploits a perspective that is at once historical and dramatic. Grand Pre's evaluation of the English forces is probably the correct historical evaluation. Henry's rhetorical evaluation in the St. Crispin's Day speech may be just that, rhetorical. But those happy few, that band of brothers, do defeat the French. That same actor plays, that the same actor plays Grand Pre and Henry deepens our understanding of this horror historical and dramatic perspective. As if to underline this, at the start of the very next scene, this is the point I was making about the chorus and pistol. Gloucester inquires about Henry's whereabouts. Bedford tells him that the king himself is wrote to view their battle. The audience knows that Henry has not only ridden to view the French forces, but has appeared in the French camp in the person of Grand Pre. Economy and recognition certainly enhance Henry V in ways similar to those Mayer describes in the plays whose puzzles he ponders. But economy and recognition do not eliminate the dramatic awkwardness of scenes seven and eight of act four. The play's history on the stage offers a few solutions. 
nine prompt books of the 1875 Charles, Charles Calvert production in the play of the play in New York reveal little. In each, of, each of, in each, only McMorris's laws are omitted. None of the other lines in question is deleted or reassigned. All, those, all of those Kreishes, by Kreish, by Kreish, they all become by St. Patrick. Uh, two prompt books of the Charles Keene production of the play delete the meeting of the four captains uh, and delete the last portion of Flewellen's speech in Act 4, Scene 7. A prompt book of the Samuel Phelps production omits Captain McMorris and Jamie, deletes the relevant portion of Flewellen's speech, and as deletes as well Flewellen's opinion of Captain Gower. Olivier's film solves all of the problems by omitting McMorris's laws in Act 3, Scene 2, omitting the challenge between Henry and Williams in Act 4, Scene 1, and consequently omitting those portions of Act 4, Scenes 7 and 8, in which the lines in question occur. The 1976 Royal Shakespeare Company production of the play almost solves the problem without deleting as much text as the Olivier film. It deletes part of Williams's response to Henry in Act 4, Scene 7. Or if I can see my glove in his cap, which he swore as he was a soldier, he would wear if alive, I will strike it out soundly. This makes Williams's challenge to Flewellen in the next scene illogical. I know this, and thus I challenge it. The production goes on to delete two of Flewellen's speeches in the same scene, both deletions rendering the scene more logical. The first deleted speech is that responding to Henry's question of whether William should challenge a gentleman of great sort. It contains the offending law, in my conscience law. The second deletion is Flewellen's comment on Gower, a deletion that renders more logical Henry's question to Flewellen some 16 lines later about whether the Welshman knows uh, Gower. That three-letter word, or that two-letter word, uh, that law has implications, I think, for bibliographers, for directors, for critics, and for editors. As bibliographers, I think, I hope, we're learning that not all the answers are on the printed page and not all the answers are on the manuscript play page, especially in dramatic documents from the Elizabethan Playhouse. I was reviewing uh, a, a book by that title, interestingly enough, uh, this afternoon and looking at the extant plots uh, that uh, Greg lists in dramatic documents. And it seems as though he makes all of those, the implications of those dramatic plots is that the acting company was a lot bigger than it was, than I would have it be at 13. It gets up to 22 and 23. And I wonder why of the four, four of the seven ones that he quotes, there's three that just aren't any good because everything's muddled up, uh, whether the reason we have those around is you didn't need plots for the plays in which we did it the way we do it every day. But if we've got a, a play that big, we've got to make sure that everybody's coming and going uh, right so that these are special plays and not uh, uh, run-of-the-mill Henry V's. The plays of Shakespeare were meant to be performed, he announced, exploring in even greater depth the obvious. And the conditions of their performances often dictate the nature of their texts. I think you, on the other hand, you can go the other way around and say, if you find a wrong word, it's not that you misunderstood the play. Look for something going wrong uh, in the course of the, of the production. There's no reason why a responsible director cannot go further than the Royal Shakespeare production and put McMorris back into Act 4, Scene 7, giving him those three speeches that were transferred to Flewellen, while deleting such Flewellenisms as In My Conscience and Look Your Grace. If McMorris is not reintroduced, then such pruning as is evident in the RSC production needs to be done. 
In addition to the lines that were cut in that production, the entire section of the scene from Henry's asking Flewellen's opinion to and through Williams swearing he will keep his vow should be deleted. This is not the place to defend Henry against his many detractors. To mount an attack on his character, as many have, using the incident of Williams, Flewellen, and the gloves as evidence, and this is to say, oh, we're back with Prince Hal in the Boar's Head Tavern, is, I hope to have demonstrated, not in the least bit responsible. That dramatic sequence is incomplete, unfinished. The fault for that belongs to Shakespeare the dramatist, and I suppose Shakespeare the economist, not to Henry the character or Henry the king. If additions are like motor vehicles, as Chuck Lauer, a colleague from the University of Georgia, has suggested, then each edition will solve my puzzles editorially in its own way. For the Mack truck of editions, a variorum edition, like the one George Williams and I are preparing for this very play, the solution is simple. Reprint the folio text and discuss the crux in passing. The four-door Buick or Mercury or Chrysler a family car, a solidly middle-class edition of the plays in one volume, will probably ignore the issue entirely. As no one but yours truly has fretted over it since 1599, there's no real need to now. So too for the Ford and Chevrolet, the Datsun, and the Toyota, the single-volume paperback editions. But for those single-volume hardbound editions, the sleek sport cars of our disciplines, the Corvettes and Porsches and Jaguars coming from Methuen and Oxford and Cambridge, editions that are expected to do zero to 55 in six seconds, some chances can be taken. For these editions, I'd like to see Flewellen replaced by McMorris in the appropriate parts of Act 4, Scene 7, with Flewellen's identifying speech characteristics removed. If editions of Henry V exist with the Dauphin in the later parts of the play, with the Dauphin out of the later parts of the play, and with Westmoreland and Warwick conflated into one character, surely reintroducing McMorris is not asking too much. If future editions of one Henry IV are going to change Falstaff's name to Old Castle, surely reintroducing McMorris is not asking too much. And if in the future we will have two texts of King Lear on which to exercise our critical tools, surely reintroducing McMorris is not asking too much. One thing is certain. In physics, there are laws governing the creation and destruction of matter. Matter, I was told, as if it mattered, cannot be created or destroyed. I should like to apply the same rule to text. Text, he pontificated, cannot be created or destroyed. George Williams has added two words to the Shakespearean canon by rescuing away Tybalt from a stage direction and placing it in dialogue in Romeo and Juliet. As text cannot be created or destroyed, George's addition of two words must be matched by the deletion of two words. If I'm not allowed to reintroduce McMorris, I'd like to delete that Irish law, that two or three letter word from the mouth of a Welshman. And I'm on the lookout for the other word, other word to keep the text and nature in balance. Thank you. <laughs>